0: Don't you love that song? And not just the tune, but the message. He never stops working. Yeah, he rested after the creation week, but he never stops working. And aren't you glad about that? Let's go to him now. Our God and Father, we praise you because you are worthy of praise. And you have fit us as your Imagers to worship you. Lord, since the day of Adam and Eve's sin rebellion, you have been working at work, salvation. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming, for for living a perfect life, for being qualified to hang on the cross for our sins. And Lord, those of us who have come to repent and embrace the gospel, Lord, we know the, the salvation that you are working in our lives. Lord, we are not there. We're far from, from uh, complete salvation, and we'll receive that on the other side. But, Lord, now we just thank you. Thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you want us to worship you. You invite us to do that. And so, Lord, we invite you to be our teacher today as we get into Deuteronomy, uh, another, another uh, iteration of Deuteronomy. We ask, God, that you would lead us, guide us, help us. Enable us, Lord Jesus, to more appreciate who you are and more appreciate the life that you've given us to live. And we thank you for these things. In your name we pray, amen. Well, what do these things have in common? Scrapbooks, yearbooks, used to be picture books, but now you can just tap your app for the gallery, right? Yeah, and and all these kinds of things. So what do these have in common? They all serve to preserve memories, of course. I, for one, am lousy at preserving memories. <laughs> I think taking pictures is a chore. I just don't like doing it. That's just not me, and, you know. And putting scrapbooks together and videos, you know, is just something I'm not hardwired for. But now I know that some of you do that, and the work that you do is absolutely amazing. I so appreciate what your creativity. But how frustrating it must be, though, for people to lose their memory. And especially those who know that they're losing it. You know, especially at the beginning stages of those with Alzheimer's and, and dementia. You know, we have a dear friend like that. And uh, it's it's frustrating so much for her. And I pray for her and her husband on a regular basis because she's in the middle of all this. But as we know by now, the first part of Deuteronomy is Moses memory his recalling some of his of the history of Israel the good and the bad and the ugly and we discovered that the book of Deuteronomy is put together in a certain way called the suzerain vassal treaty and the good the bad and the ugly in Deuteronomy is part of what the learned guys call the historical prologue to this treaty to review the relationship between the suzerain who's Yahweh the vastly superior king, and the vassals, the sons and daughters of Israel, the vastly inferior people. The historical prologue is sort of like a remember-how-we-got-to-know-one-another thing. And so in the first few verses of chapter 1 of Deuteronomy, we experience Moses as the prophet speaking for God. And through Moses, the Lord reminds the people what He wants them to do, to go and take possession of the land that he swore to give Abraham's family. In other words, the Israelites were to enter the land owned by the suzerain, take the land by force, by warfare and to live in it, to occupy it. But can you imagine the ruckus that would that this would raise that the PC crowd had been there in that day? But in our passage today, Deuteronomy 1 9 to18, we hear Moses speaking on behalf of himself. And what a way to begin the sermon. So if you're not there yet, please open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 9 to 18. And we're going to read together verses 9 and 10 as Moses begins his sermon, his first of about three or four sermons in this book of Deuteronomy. At that time, I said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. Now, in these verses, we hear Moses declare the blessing the Lord has shown his people. It has to do not with numbers per se, but with the faithfulness of God. Moses fulfilled the promise he made with Abram and Sarai, later called Abraham and Sarah the Lord told them that they would have so many descendants that they couldn't even count them all. And then Moses pronounces a further blessing on the generation he was speaking to in verse 11. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. And what a reminder of the goodness of God How many of us can look back on our lives and declare loudly and proudly that the Lord has been good to us? Can I get an amen on that one? Indeed, He has been nothing but good. He's been nothing but good to me. And how we need to put that little song that many of us have learned back in the day, you know, to practical use, like, you know, count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings and see what God Done. But how many times has the Lord done great things in your life and my life that we've either forgotten or we've taken for granted? Take just the matter of physical protection. Can we identify with this? All the times that He has protected us, and I for one should not be here. I know uh, several times that as I look back on these incidences and these situations, I should have been with the Lord already, but He has protected me. He has spared my life. And these are just the times I'm vividly aware of. What about the other times that I'm not aware of that He has protected me and preserved my life? And I'm sure that you would agree that we can camp out on just this for days on end, just recalling and just remembering the goodness of the Lord and how faithful He's been to us and how much He's provided for us. But if you can't think of anything off the bat, you know that, as it were, the Lord has done for you lately. Kathy has been busy making a binder. And this binder, she is recording the answers to prayer. And so you can look and through these things and you can see how the Lord has been working as we've been praying and all the yes answers that the Lord has given Grace United as we've been praying. It's an amazing thing. So if, let me encourage you. Just look through this, and and you'll see just how great the Lord has been and how good the Lord has been to us. In short, our God is a God of abundant blessing and faithfulness. And let's remember this and never forget it, especially when the going gets tough for us. You know, I often say that faith is historical. In other words, when our present circumstances look bleak and we can't see how things are going to work out, In the future, we need to look at the past. How often has the Lord proven himself faithful in your life, in my life? As in the past, so in the present and in the future. Since the Lord has been faithful to you then, surely he will be faithful to you now. But let him determine the times and determine the means by how he's going to show himself and show up in your life. And I sometimes pray, Lord, Help me to have patience with you as you're working your will out in my life in this circumstance that you might glorify yourself. But sometimes God's overflowing blessings comes with a burden. I think, for example, the gift of salvation the Lord has given me. You know, I'm so grateful for what the Lord has done in my life and the lengths he went to to purchase salvation and to offer salvation to me. And I want to shout the news. I want to see everyone who doesn't know Christ come to know Christ. And that's a burden for me. And I know it is with many of you as well. And so what do we do? We cry out to the Lord. And we continue to cry out to Him. And we continue to cry out to Him. We trust the truth of God's Word in 2 Peter 3.9 where He tells us that the Lord is not willing that anybody perish. But that all come to repentance. Every day that goes by where the Lord delays His coming and even where He stays His hand of judgment on this country because of our wickedness is one more day offered to our loved ones for salvation. Let's keep bringing the burden of salvation about our loved ones to the Lord and let's prepare ourselves. Let's get ready so that when He does give us the opportunity to share the gospel, that we will be able to share with them the true gospel and not let what Miss Kitty did a little while ago, right? Hey, you want to know Jesus? Ain't it great? No, we want to give them the true gospel. The King died for us, and the King wants us to follow Him. And a shameless plug, though, join us on Tuesdays right here in the sanctuary as we intercede, as we go to war concerning our loved ones, and the things that the Lord has laid on our hearts are incessary prayer. Let me tell you what we don't do at that time and what we also do. We don't have a devotional. We don't have an opening worship song. We don't talk about prayer, but we pray. Immediately, right, 7 o'clock on the dot or as close to it as possible, we begin to pray. We begin to verbalize prayers of the things that the Lord has laid on our hearts. For 60 minutes, we pray. We don't stop until 60 minutes is done. And we pray, trusting in the words of our Lord, where He said in His prayer, in His terminology, that this is the greater works that He tells us in John 14 12. Prayer is the greater work. Prayer is the most powerful thing in the universe. Did you know that? It's the most powerful thing. Prayer can do anything God can do. So join us, Tuesdays, seven to eight. But for Moses, God's faithfulness in blessing the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob resulted in a burden for him. In verses 12 to 18, we will talk about Moses' burden laid on him as a result of God's blessing. So let's take a look now at chapter 1, verse 12, as he sets this up. And Moses says, how can I bear by myself the weight and the burden of you and your strife? We're going to talk about that strife in a moment. I see two things here in Moses' statement. First is, God's blessing was too much for Moses to handle. You ever been blessed like that? Too much for you to handle? I don't see a whole lot of, oh yeah, not a whole lot of that. But this happened with Moses. He had to have help leading the sons and daughters of Israel, numbering in the hundreds of thousands. Can you imagine the problems that come along with a crowd that size? We'll see in a moment that there would not be just one set of leaders, though. There would be two sets of leaders. One set was what we would call a militia. He referred to them as commanders. And then there was another set of leaders that we would refer to, or he referred to as judges. We would call them the civilian leaders. So besides needing help in leading the people, there's another thing I see here, and again, it is strife. He acknowledges that there is strife in the ranks, divisions between the people. Now, in any family, organization, or nation, There's no time, no time is a good time for divisions. Would you agree? But at this point in Israel history, it was especially not a good time. Because remember the task that the Lord gave them, to take possession of the land. It was absolutely crucial for all the people to be pulling in the same direction in order to pull off the task that the suzerain gave them to do. Now, there's a term that's often used in the military to describe this unity and everyone pulling together, and that term is called esprit de corps. Now, Webster tells us this, it's that sense of unity and common interest and responsibilities among those tasked with the mission to accomplish. You know, military folks go and they they salute one another, they wear the same uniform, and and they wear it proudly and sharply. That's part of that esprit de corps. It builds the morale so that they can be victorious in the battle. And with the nation of Israel tasked to go to war, there could be no disunity lest they fail in the assignment that the Lord, their suzerain, gave to them, the vassal nation, to take over his land. So what to do? How would Moses' burden become lighter? Let's look in verses 13 to 18 to discover how Moses accomplished this. Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answer me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes." And I charged your judges at that time. Hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You should not be intimidated by anyone for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. So let's take a look at this. Moses delegated the responsibility of leadership to the people to help him. He told them to seek leaders from all 12 tribes of Jacob. And they agreed. But it couldn't be just anybody. They had to be qualified. It was not a popularity contest. And it was for a specific purpose. See, these leaders were to be wise men, practical men, experienced men. And their practical understanding of things and their experience would be needed as they would lead warriors from their own tribes into battle. The members of each tribe were to, in essence, form a military structure, commanders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and even of tens, along with other officers as well. The task that Moses assigned the people to choose their military leaders wasn't a story that we hear about in Exodus or in Numbers if we follow the history of Israel so far. This was a new wrinkle, so to speak. But if you're a careful Bible reader, you remember that the sons of Israel already had a system of judges in place. Shortly after that little Red Sea incident, Moses' father-in-law warned Moses about being a one-man show. If you remember, everybody was coming to Moses, and they were kind of waiting in line to talk to the leader because of all the problems that they had in their lives. They wanted to get his advice on these things. And Jethro, in effect, said, Moses, my boy, you're going to wear yourself out. This is not productive. You need to organize, make a chain of command, appoint leaders of tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands, who the people will come to to seek advice on various matters. And anything too tough for the leaders to handle, they can bring them to you. And that's what Moses did. And so the system of judges had been in place for a while. This was nothing new. Again, what was new was Moses told the people to appoint leaders for the militia using that same kind of structure. See, the militia Using that structure, these men were going to lead their tribes into battle. It would take a well-coordinated and well-organized effort to defeat the pagans and the giants in the land. Now, in verses 16 to 18, Moses recommissioned the judges and reminded them of who they were to be in their character and how they were to treat their duties and responsibilities. And what a list this is. Think about this. Look at this. They were to hear cases of their fellow Israelites with impartiality. They were to judge righteously. The judges were to treat all people equally and all the while courageously submitting to God's authority, not being intimidated by anyone. And finally, they were to live out a commitment to accountability. The judges were to know one's limitations, consulting with others up the chain as it were, when the matters were too tough for them. Moses reminded them of the orders and instructions of all the things that they should do. Now, this is a very straightforward, very practical passage. But, you know, I look at this and I marvel at this passage because I see things here that far more than meets the eye and has direct application as well to us in the 21st century. You would think Deuteronomy has no application to us, 21st century Christians living in mechanics bill, but it definitely does. As we know, the Bible was not written to us, it was written for us, exactly. Remember what Paul wrote regarding what we call the Old Testament Scripture in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, he says, "'For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction.'" that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, again, Old Testament scriptures, we might have hope. So let's get Israel's supernatural lay of the land here. Israel was about to take possession of land situated in the middle of hostile territory. There were a number of nations butted up against Yahweh's land, controlled by princes, spiritual entities who were living in rebellion against Yahweh. Now, all these entities except for, you know, Abraham's kinfolk. Again, this was Yahweh's land, and he dispatched his people to take possession of this land for a couple of reasons. First, it was to be, they were to be his instruments of judgment upon the Amorites. And second, they were to be his witnesses of his goodness in the presence of the pagans. But let's step back and get an even bigger supernatural picture of what's going on here. Why did God create Israel in the first place? In large measure, it was to take back what is rightfully His. In other words, the Lord continued through the creation of Israel to implement His plan for worldwide salvation, culminating in the sending of His Messiah and everything that goes with Him, His birth, His perfect life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His return and everlasting reign. For after all, who owns this world? The Lord does. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it and everyone in it. Every person who ever lived, the Lord owns. We are all His in that sense. It is the Lord's desire to save the world and to make it exactly the way He wants it. And He would not have evil, ultimately have the upper hand. Yahweh was going to win this. And so the Lord commissioned His people to further His agenda in two ways. First, it was by force, by warfare. The Lord was going to send His holy army into His land to judge the wicked Amorites by the way of Of the sword. Remember what the Lord told Abram in the covenant he made with him. He said his people was going to be enslaved for four hundred years in a foreign land, and that God was going to then deliver them and bring them back to the land of promise four centuries later for a reason. He tells Abram this reason in Genesis 15 16. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God gave the Amorites 400 years to repent. But did they repent? Obviously not. So the Lord's mercy turned into His arm of judgment, and Israel was that arm. There was another reason for the Lord's use of force through the sons of Israel, and that was to get rid of the spawn of the union produced by the watchers. The sons of God and the daughters of men. Remember back in Genesis chapter 6, there was this issue about the sons of God and daughters of men, right? A universal Jewish understanding of that passage, of what the sons of God was, was that they were the watchers. They were the evil embodied spiritual beings which had sexual relations with the daughters of men. That was their interpretation of that passage. And who were the spawn of these of this union, of these unions? It was the Nephilim. It was the giants. They were totally wicked beings corrupting humanity. Apparently, it was Yahweh's land where the Nephilim were hanging out. And they had to go. The Lord sent the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to cleanse his land by defeating the evil that resided there. Again, this was Yahweh's land, and this land was sacred space. Yahweh's land is indeed sacred space, and it was in dire need of cleansing. And we're going to see this over and over again in Deuteronomy. The suzerain's land was to be set apart for him, once cleansed. And made holy, as in the Amorites dispossessed, the Nephilim dispatched, and his people established. It was then time to show a witness to the pagan nations. And this was the second part of the commission that God gave his people. And so let's explore this second part here. The Lord was going to use his people after they settled down in the land, in his sacred space, as his witnesses, to the pagan nations surrounding Yahweh's land. The Lord's plan was to win the hearts and minds of the pagans to voluntarily come under His rule. The witnesses the Lord wanted His vassals to set out was living out His Torah, His teaching in their lives between one another and with those whom they came in contact with, to live it out, to live out that righteousness. God's plan was to show the nations that Torah was a far superior way to live than what the pagans were living and how they were living their lives. To the degree that the sons and daughters of Israel lived out the Torah would be the degree, the incentive that they would have to give the nations to come under the rule of the God of Israel. Make sense? So the Lord's strategy for Israel is twofold. Sacred space... And walk as witnesses. As it was with Yahweh in Israel, so it is with Christ and the church. Sacred space and walk as witnesses. That's true for us. How so? The church is sacred space. It is holy ground. The very word church is ecclesia. Literally, called out ones. That's what church is. Followers of Christ are spiritually called out of this world and into the kingdom of Christ. In practically every New Testament letter, the word saints or holy one is used. And every church, in every church, holiness is the watchword. The commands and encouragements and exhortations are directed to the saints, to Christ followers, those called out from the world. And do you realize what this means? dear friend. Like Israel, the church is in the middle of hostile territory. Paul reminds us in Colossians that there are two kingdoms and only two, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Christ. That's it. There is no third kingdom. There is no middle ground. We are either in one kingdom or the other. There's no foot in both kingdoms, one or the other. And all who follow Christ in the kingdom of Christ, not in the kingdom of darkness. And that means that we are in the realm of sacred space. When we meet together as members of the kingdom of Christ, there is more than just we humans here. Who else is here? The Lord is here. The Holy One is here. Now, of course, he's here, you might be thinking. Of course, pastor, you're saying something that we already know. You're preaching to the choir. But has that reality come home to you in the deepest part of your life? For example, early Saturday evening rolls around. And if you're thinking about Sunday morning, the next day, what comes into your heart and mind when you think about that? How does that impact your life? How do you react about anticipating coming to corporate worship? Ho hum just another day, or I get a chance to look forward and to meet with Holy God in the presence of Holy God along with my brothers and sisters on sacred ground. Is this what you think of? Another thing about sacred space, it is to affect the way we live and move and have our being even outside of our times of corporate worship. Our corporate worship experience ought to affect the way we live during the week in preparation for us to come back for the next time of corporate worship. Our worship experience ought to reorient our vision upward to Christ, the one who made it possible for us to worship the one true God. When was the last time it really came home to you that if it wasn't for Jesus and His sacrifice, we would not be able to worship the only true God, even if we wanted to. When's the last time that has come across your mind and heart? Paul writes to the church in Ephesus about this truth in Ephesians 2.18. He says, For through him we both have access in the one spirit to the Father. Messianic Jews grafted in Gentiles who make up the church of Jesus Christ have access, and only we have access to the one true God, and it is only because Christ paid the price for our sins. When's the last time you thought about those kinds of things? And because we as followers of Jesus occupy holy ground, that's what makes spiritual authority in the local church and church discipline so important. You know, there's safety, there's spiritual safety in the local church coming under the authority of the local church because it's the Lord's church. Remember when Paul told the Corinthians about how to deal with rampant sexual immorality in their church, as in the man who was sleeping with his stepmother? You remember that that, that story? Paul's bottom line for them was direct. 1 Corinthians 5.13, remove the evil person from your midst. One author put it this way. He said, send the one who refuses to repent of their sin into the world because that is where sin belongs. It does not belong in sacred space. And the bottom line is, sacred space is where we, God's people, live. Just like with the sons and daughters of Israel. They had to dispossess evil from the land of promise. And so we are to be about the same thing as as those who live in the kingdom of light among us. The other part of God's strategy, in addition to sacred space, is walking as his witnesses. This means simply but authentically involving ourselves in what Grace United and every local church ought to be about. And what are the three things? Evangelizing the lost and what? Discipling the saved, which we're going to be continuing to practice the brown bag, and also living together in love and unity. Israel was to show their pagan neighbors that the ways of Torah are far superior than their own ways of life. In the same way, we as followers of Christ are to live and to show the pagans in our world that the way of Christ is a far superior way of living than the way they live their lives. And with that said, though, can you say with conviction that the way of Christ is is a superior way of life as he by his spirit lays it out in scripture? Can you say that with conviction? Or do we say that the ways of Christ are a superior way of life until, until what? It creates inconvenience in our lifestyle. Or it puts the brakes upon what we want to do where scripture tells us it's wrong. Then do we say that the way of Christ is the best way to live? See, I don't have to go into all the detail about the way that the church of Jesus Christ clashes with the culture of the day, do I? See, wokeism, homosexuality, and transgenderism, the pursuit of pleasure, all of the religions such as Islam and et cetera and et cetera, all of these and so much more is where true Christians personally and corporately, we've got to draw the line in the sand, don't we? The truth is, something must give when our toe is heading toward one side of the line or the other. And here's the rub. The world, as the world, will never, ever accept the ways of Christ as superior to their way of life. They will never do it. For the ways of Christ calls for death to self, while the world demands that we live for ourselves. Christ calls for his followers to have to display open-handed generosity. The world says, no, keep it for yourself. To be persons of integrity, even at great personal cost. Sexual purity is a hallmark of a true Christian. This does not sell well in the world. And neither does God's definition of love. To say that God's definition of love and the world's definition of love are, are different is a vast understatement. Would you agree with this? And so let me give you a challenge. If I were to ask you, are the ways of Christ a far superior way to live than the ways of the world and ask for a show of hands, I would be shocked if every hand did not go up. But I wonder though, on Tuesday afternoon or on Saturday morning in the quiet moments, would you say with conviction, that the way of Christ is the superior way to live, even if it costs you something. If not, why not? Allow our brothers and sisters in cultures and in countries that are hostile to the gospel to strengthen us. See, our time of persecution will be here in Mechanicsville before we know it. In some places in our country, a number of our brothers and sisters have already paid the price or paid a price? And as we conclude the message this morning, I invite us to recite the words of a letter found on the desk of a pastor from Zimbabwe the day after he gave his life in martyrdom for the Lord. I have no doubt that his, this dear brother's consideration of his way of life, of the life of Christ, is far superior than the pagan neighbors that he had. And though we have not recited this declaration for a while, it is good to remind ourselves of the words of our dear brother from time to time. So if you if you have your manuscript, go ahead and read from there. Or if you don't, you can pull it out of your bulletin. But let me encourage you to even take it from the bulletin, maybe put it on your refrigerator door or something. You know, to look at it from time to time, to remind us of the commitment that, that the way of Christ demands of us. The Lord who loves us demands of us that we Follow him wholeheartedly. And so recite with me, please, this declaration of this pastor the day before he was martyred. He wrote this. He said, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer, and labor with power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up shut up, or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I'm a disciple of his. I will keep going until he comes, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Is this your heart? If it's not, we need to examine. Where are you? Is the way of Christ superior? Not just one way among many, but is it superior to the ways of the pagan? Lord Jesus, you gave your all to the Father. The results of you giving your all to the Father to prove to the world that you love the Father resulted in the cross. As we heard today in Bible fellowship, Stephen gave his all to you and it resulted in his stoning. Lord Jesus, we were dead, dead in our sins and trespasses. And you created in us who know you, who are in your kingdom. You created in us a miracle. You brought the dead back to life. Lord, how could we not follow you? How could we not conclude that your way of life is far superior than the ways of the pagans. Lord, I pray for each of us that you will give us that conviction, something that we are willing to die for, that your way is better than than any other way there is. Lord, may we live in gratitude for what you've done for us. Lord, you've loved us to the uttermost. May we return that, that life. May we return that commitment. But Lord, we can't do it by ourselves. We recognize our need, our utter dependency upon the Holy Spirit to do this in our lives. But Lord, that does not mean that we sit back and just let you do all the work. Lord, you've told us in your word, Paul was a good example of that. He tells us to work out, to exercise our salvation with fear and trembling for it is you who work in us, both to will and to do according to your good pleasure. So Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for myself. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will help us, please, to follow you because we want to follow you. Be, to follow you because we can't do anything else. Just like Peter told you, Lord, when you ask, Do you want to go away too? After all the thousands left you. And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So, Lord, I pray in that spirit that you will help us to live out the ways that you've called us to live. Again, knowing that your way of living is vastly superior than what anybody else or any other any other religious leader might have. Lord, you loved us. Help us, Lord, to love you in return. And to do that by obeying your commandments, because we love you, because we want to show you love. So now, Father, I pray that as we turn our attention to the giving, that you help us to give with with a heart that's overflowing, full of gratitude for what you've done, for the fact, Lord, that that you've given us life in that abundantly and eternal. I pray, Lord, as we turn attention to our singing as well, Lord, that you will help us to sing with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, giving you the praise and glory and honor and worship that you alone deserve. we will thank you for these things in Jesus' name.